Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb the sea. Welcome back to another episode of the Art and Science of Running podcast. Today we're joined by world record holder, many times over, Zach Bitter. Zach recently set two world records on the treadmill, the 12-hour world record and the 100-mile world record. Welcome, Zach. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Appreciate you making the time. Um, your your record run has certainly made the headlines and... Um, as we were chatting about just before the show, um, <laughs> it's it's kind of gone mainstream. It's not just for us running geeks, but um, you're you're certainly making the rounds um, with different news outlets and and on a lot of different media outlets. So um, that's really cool that that you did something on a treadmill in your own home. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the world is watching and was. <laughs> It is kind of it is kind of funny because like uh, I mean we chatted about this a bit, but it's like you know there's a relative shortage I think of stuff going on, and then there's a little bit of I think of like a, a cartoonish factor of being on a treadmill for twelve hours that kind of catches someone's eye and at least draws them in for to see what was going on. Maybe not watch the entire twelve hours, but <laughs> it's a. Uh, it's been kind of funny to see that all play out, and and I think it's kind of just it's just like that recipe for it, I guess, right now with with the whole COVID-19 stuff, people sheltering in place and probably having limited exposure to their normal routines or at least varying in exercise related stuff. So a little bit more curiosity probably about what people are doing to cope with that stuff. And as you know, with ultra runners, you know, we're going to find a way to cope. And if that means being on a, on a a treadmill for 12 hours and so be it. Yeah. So can you, can you give us a little background? I mean, this this wasn't initially your goal for the year, right? To to set a world record on the treadmill. Um, you you had other plans for this time of the year, correct? Right. Yeah. No, I wasn't planning on doing this. And I've had the treadmill stuff kind of on the back of my mind at least the last few years. Partly just because you know I was aware of like Dave Proctor's run last year. I was very aware of your 50 mile world best on a treadmill and um, I followed Mike Wardian's career pretty closely over the years. And, you know, he's been on there for the 50 K a couple times, I think. Uh, so it's like, a, it seemed like kind of an interesting event, but as you know, with like kind of the dearth of different types of events and you start to try to focus on certain aspects of the sport to try to really figure out kind of where your potential lies or at least like where your max potential is. You kind of have to focus on some specifics. It was kind of a hard puzzle piece to find time for, I guess. But when uh, when we got kind of the the outlook in March that there probably wouldn't be any races in the, at least the first half of 2020, I was like, well, maybe this is the opportunity to, to do that. And, and I had been training for a, a track 100 miler actually. So mechanically speaking, I was probably in about as good of a spot as I could be without being on a treadmill during the the big chunk of that training block leading in. 
And it was kind of just like, okay, now I just need to do enough on the treadmill and in the next like maybe four weeks to make sure I don't find something like really, really different that could like sideline me on, on the day of. And fortunately I was able to get on the treadmill, I think enough to uh, limit that risk at least. Yeah. Well, I, I'm interested in, in a couple pieces there that you mentioned. One, um, I, I, I'd like to get into, you know, what, what specific demands might be different on a treadmill versus a track versus just a trail or, or a road. Um, but I think we can get into some of that a little bit later. I'd like to just put a, put a pin in that for a second. Um, cause I think we, we could go off on another tangent, with that one. but, but the other piece that I, that I'm curious about and, and, um, that I feel like a lot of our listeners will also be interested in is, is just the fact that you didn't just throw in the towel and say, well, it looks like I'm not racing this year, or it looks like all that training was for naught and, you know, taking it as a loss, so to speak, but just, um, you did what a lot of people around the world are doing. And that is that you, you said, okay, well, I've, I've been training. I put in all this, this work. I have this big block of fitness. What now? And, um, yes, you set a world record. You ran faster than anyone ever has for 12 hours and for a hundred miles on a treadmill. But, um, I guess I'm interested in, um, your perspective, both as an athlete and as a coach and, and a fan of the sport, you know, like what could your everyday runner glean from what you experienced? Like what, what would you suggest? Um, how did you shift your mindset and, and your focus uh, so that, it wasn't just a, <laughs> a waste of your, of your time. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure you, you had this with coaching and stuff too. And, you know, I went through this process, I think, uh, with a lot of my coaching clients where it's like, what do we do in a situation like this? And, uh, I think there's value in saying, okay, I'm just going to back off peaking and just develop the base foundational things. And, just get myself in a really good position to be able to spend like a good six to eight weeks to really fine tune towards whatever event you decide to get into or do get into when they do pop back up. Um, and as you know, like, you know, a lot of this stuff, it's interesting to look at like the eight weeks or so leading into a taper or a race. Uh, but a lot of times when you see like big performances by folks or performances that kind of mark their career, it's a lot of what they've been doing for the years leading into that. So, you know, just, I think you, there's some consideration with like, okay, no training is a wasted training. It's always going to add into something down the road. And I, I probably spent about a week kind of contemplating that, uh, whether like that was maybe the move and the kind of tug to that direction was maybe a little bit, I had a pretty big racing season last year where I felt like I was able to push maybe a little harder than normal on a few more occasions than I would normally be able to. So in the back of the mind, I'm thinking like, you know, maybe this is my opportunity to just like scale back a little bit and be fresh and make sure I absorb all of 2019 and don't find myself at the end of 2020 feeling like I just did too much in the last two years. But, you know, a lot of times I follow the training, the results and that sort of stuff as my guide. And the, the facts in my training were that, you know, I was fit and I was pretty ready and I felt good. So I wasn't necessarily going to fight kind of where that stuff came up. And, you know, I just come off of a couple of weeks of about 140 mile weeks each where I was doing about a hundred on each of those right at kind of goal, hundred mile intensity. So 
I was far enough in the plan and I was interested enough in the treadmill stuff that I thought this is a, a good opportunity to do it. Uh, and, you know, with, with other folks I worked with and stuff too, it was, it, you, we looked at stuff too, like what is your long-term goals versus your short-term goals? Does like simulating a race, doing a virtual race, doing a time trial or something make sense for your particular situation or not? And then kind of going from there. And it's kind of been interesting to see where other people have decided to put their energies and in kind of which direction to head with that stuff. But, you know, for me, it was, uh, I was more on the side of doing an event. And then once we started kind of putting together the event itself, it ended up kind of becoming a little bit more, I think, than just me being on a treadmill. Uh, in fact, I think I might've been maybe the distant ring in this three thing, three ring circus that ended up being, uh, <laughs> the event of the day where we had, uh, almost 30 people come in throughout yourself included, uh, just to kind of share their stories, their expertise, and uh, try to develop a little bit of entertainment for folks and motivation for folks who are are possibly sitting at home wondering, like, well, what should I be doing fitness-wise? How should I be spending my time if there's not an event on the calendar and things like that? So once we kind of had the whole idea put in place, it felt like the right thing to do for me personally. Yeah. And congratulations, by the way, not only on the records, but <laughs> in orchestrating and pulling together what, you know, turned into, what was it, 13 hour, 14 hour show. Um, I mean, it was, it was quite impressive. And, and the, the list of people that you mentioned, I mean, you, it was basically a who's who of, of the sport, um, uh, not just the sport of ultra running, but endurance um, sports. And uh, I mean, I was, I was fanboying out in my little session because, you know, I was on there with Dave Scott and Dave <laughs> and, and Dave Proctor. And it was kind of like, huh, this is, why am I assembled with this group of people? I, I didn't quite feel like I belonged, but I, I'm glad there was a, an opening and you you let me fill that spot because it, it was really neat to be a part of that. And, um, and I watched some of it before I, I came on and some of it after. Um, we'll be sure to include a link to that, uh, the YouTube stream and, and just the, the commentary that was going on throughout the whole thing, because like you said, um, all the way up to the very end, I mean, your wife, Nicole was on there with, um, Sally McRae and Courtney DeWalter and, and Maggie Guderall and, you know, just like so many stars <laughs> that, that, um, just really i i feel like added to the event not that not that what you were doing wasn't exciting enough i mean that was certainly exciting but um it it made it feel like a full-on production i mean it, it was like who needs the I, in fact i tweeted <laughs> in response to i think um eric trans or someone it was like who needs the nfl <laughs> or the <laughs> or the MLB, you know, like that was, that was probably the most, uh, engaging and entertaining sporting event that I've participated in for, for quite a long time. And, um, I mean, I don't sit around every weekend watching football, but I like sports and I, I don't mind. I, I enjoy watching the, um, the spectacle that is sporting events and, and what you created on a treadmill was, was certainly entertaining and engaging and compelling. And, um, and the fact that you were participating with <laughs> the, the participants that you, you set it up so people could run along with you uh, as part of a fundraising effort and, and, and also engaging with, with some of the commentators was, was quite remarkable. I mean, especially for that 
period of time to for you for you to be running faster than doing something that no one has ever done while also you know interacting with and and i would assume still feeling some some responsibility for for how it all played out um that it was impressive so well done yeah you know it was it was kind of funny because i i caught myself a couple times during the 12-ish hours thinking like or just wondering, actually, like, if I didn't have so much tether to this, would I even be able, would I be able to work up the, like, mental fortitude to stay on the treadmill for the whole time? And I think somewhere around maybe seven hours in, I was like, like, I was wondering, just like, you know, like, my biggest motivation right now to stay on the treadmill is because there's five hours worth of people who have already blocked off their calendar and said they would be willing to come on and and it'll be part of this thing. So it's going to look really pretty silly if I, if I, if I am the weak link in the whole bunch. So that was actually like, that wasn't necessarily the intention of that, but it, it ended up working out to be kind of a little bit of a motivator, at least a little more than I anticipated. And I wasn't sure, you know, I hadn't run further than 30 miles on a treadmill going into this. So I was in a little bit of a uncertainty as to just like, you know, well, what does your body and mind feel like when you're two thirds or three fourths the way into something like this? And uh, I think that was another kind of exciting, different aspect to this event versus some of the other stuff I've I've done. Just kind of that little bit of relative unknown, but I kind of leaned on just that being something that's always excited me about ultra marathon is that no matter what you've done, there always seems to be something out there that if you really want to experience something you've never experienced before, or you know, charter out onto something unknown, there's an event out there that will get you that. So <laughs> um, it was kind of fun to after spending a good chunk of. Uh, the last five, six years, building a lot of my training around events I've already done or things I've already done, or at least similar to those, uh, being able to kind of step outside that comfort zone a little bit and, and, and dip into the unknown a little. So, uh, that was kind of another, another draw, I guess, for me is, is to keep that, that part of the sport still kind of intact. Yeah. That's definitely something that I love about the sport of running and ultra running and just endurance athletics is that, um, it's not just that the human potential, um, and our ability to adapt and, and adjust is, is really great, but there's also just that (laughs) the the only limitation or one of the limitations is just creativity that, that, that there are so many options. There are so many different ways in which we can test ourselves. And, and ideally if we do it right, this could be something that we're able to do for the rest of our lives. Um, that was certainly something that I um, sensed when I was speaking with, with Dave Scott, six time Ironman champion and uh, with Dean Carnassus, you know, these guys are in their sixties and, um, <laughs> still look fit are still active still get on the bike still get out and run still work out um they don't look that their age um and they they're still a part of the sport and and there are very few things in life whether they be hobbies or whether they be careers where you can continue doing the things that you love for that long a period of time um when i think of other sports that i played growing up you know other than playing basketball with my kids, like in the house half the time, because it's snowing outside most of the time. Um, unless I sign up for like a city league basketball team or something like that, or a softball or something like that, it's or flag football or whatever. Like there aren't a lot of opportunities to continue training for and participating in, in sport. Um, mm-hmm. and, 
um, that's one of the things that I just love about, about running, um, is that we have that opportunity. Yeah. Running tends to, seems to be the, one of the sports where like that barrier to entry is, is relatively low and it's not necessarily, uh, too held on to like your ability level either. Like you can be middle age, never run a step in your life and pick it up and participate in a meaningful way and be in that community. Whereas like you said, like, you know, with some of the more core sports or the team sports, you're, you're, you're tied to what's available to you. And you're also probably tied to like where your ability levels are. So like in some cases, like the access to those tend to diminish as your abilities reduce. And I think that's, that is a really cool thing about running is you just see such a variety of folks from people who've been running their whole life to folks who got into it later in life. And they're all, we're all kind of in that same, same community together. Yeah. Now, speaking of barrier to entry um, and and just the accessibility of running, can you tell us a little bit about your your journey, how you started, why you started, and and what keeps you going? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, before I I guess when I first realized endurance was even a sport, other or running was a sport outside of just being part of other sports, was in middle school when our class did the presidential physical fitness challenge and there was the one mile component to that. And I realized pretty quick that my strengths were skewed a little more towards that than they were like the shuttle run or the pull-ups and the sprinting type activities. So uh, that kind of got me interested. You know, I actually remember thinking when we finished that, like all my other classmates just hated it. They were like, I never want to do that again. And I was like, kind of in the back of my mind thinking, well, I wonder why I feel like I'd like to do that again. So that was maybe my first like glance into that being a sport that would be something I'd be interested in. Uh, by the time I made it to high school, I started kind of focusing more on track and cross country than some of the other sports. And that kind of led me to just get a little more interested in like what it meant to be a runner or training year round, which I think I did for the first time going into my senior year in high school. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate. My senior uh, high school coach was a, a big fan of running. He did it himself. He was always willing to kind of talk about stuff like that and you know, share his knowledge and excitement with it. And that definitely kind of fed into piquing my interest so that when I went to college, I was in a place, I think, where I was ready to learn and wanted to find out more about kind of just why do we do this workout as opposed to just, well, coach said, do this, I'm going to do that. And then kind of carry on with that sort of stuff. And And that's what kind of got me interested, I think, in just like learning the different components of like a well-structured training plan and like what a certain workout is going to do if you do it and periodizing things towards specific distances and intensities and also just identifying like where my preferences were within that context. And, you know, one thing I learned from my college experience was my favorite workout of the week was the long run. So when I finished college and didn't have that team structure and race schedule structure so much, I was just doing a lot more volume building for a few years before I kind of got into ultra marathon. And, uh, once I did my first ultra marathon, I was pretty excited to make that a, a component of kind of what I wanted to do as a, as a hobby and, and, and now a profession more or less. So, um, it's just kind of an interesting, I think I took like a relatively slow approach, you know, in terms of really kind of figuring it out, but I think that's probably, helped with my longevity in the sport so far is just, you know, kind of taking it maybe a little more slowly, not taking it too seriously early on and kind of fizzling out with my interest. And, uh, you know, like that's been kind of a fun journey and been just a, bit, a huge part of my life. 
yeah, it, it's an inspiring story for, for sure. Um, how would you, I mean, how is it that you've been able to go from, you know, a, a newbie runner to, like you said, doing it as a profession? Um, it's not just part of your lifestyle, but it is, it's how you make a living, um, through a combination of different things. So, um, what was the transition like after college? Um, what did you do before you were doing what you're doing now? Yeah, no. And that's a great, great point because like, I certainly wasn't a good enough runner at the standard distances to ever imagine I would have it as a profession. So, you know, my trajectory with running was always kind of like, this is an activity that I like better than any other activity I do. So it's going to be part of my life. And I just assumed like during college and even after college that that's kind of how that would go. And, you know, I went to school to be a teacher. So I spent about five years in school and another five years teaching full time in Wisconsin before I kind of got to a point in my ultra running career and the coaching side of things where I was just looking at it practically and thinking if I really want to do this right, I might have to focus a little more exclusively on the running industry at least and give myself like that, that full ingratiation in order to, uh, in order to really maximize my potential. And for me, the decision kind of was, well, competing is going to be a short timeline in terms of where, where I'll be able to be competitive at, especially with some of the shorter ultra marathons, that timeline is going to be short relative to most like occupational careers. So if I decided to uh, go back to teaching, that would be an option. And, you know, I had the, the last school I was teaching at was very supportive in that they said, Hey, if it doesn't work, just come back. So I didn't have as much of a fear to plunge in, I think, as maybe I would have, if I didn't have a backup plan or a, a second strategy, but, um, you know, that was kind of, that was kind of how that came to be. It was more just kind of gradual where, you know, I had some success with, uh, some races, the biggest one probably in 2013 at the end of the year, I broke the American record for hundred miles and the world record for 12 hours. And that was kind of like the first sign that, okay, if I focus on some of this stuff, I could, you know, be, uh, be a name in this sport that, that, uh, can, can use that as, as kind of leverage to partner up with the brands I like and, uh, you know, create relationships within that, within the the running community to make it kind of a full-time endeavor. And, you know, it's like, you know, coaching is, is kind of similar to that where like you, you have good race results and things like that. And you end up, doing interviews and, and being part of the community in a way that people recognize that you're a coach and they're more willing or able to reach out to you and, you know, you know, help leverage that side of your business a little bit. So, uh, it was, it was kind of, kind of interesting. I mean, from a teaching standpoint, it was like, I like to think I still use a lot of those, 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 uh, the, the tools that I learned in that from the coaching side of thing. And then also in my own, programming is just kind of viewing it as an educator as much as anything when you're when you're working with a person and you get in a sport like ultra marathon where i think we're still from just what we know kind of in the wild wild west a bit and it's just really hard to kind of put real concrete like absolutes on a sport where you know we're running all day long so i think that what that ends up being is it becomes this big individual kind of experience with yourself and anyone you're working with. And I really like that aspect of like taking an individual's lifestyle, what they have available, where their stressors are at and things like that. And, and formulating a strategy that's going to maybe not be 
the best strategy for everyone across the board, but for their particular situation is going to be the best strategy. And that kind of puzzle, like problem solving side of things has always been a really interesting part of the sport to me from both uh, the athlete side as well as the coach side. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's when I first heard of you was, uh, kind of in that 2013, it was kind of when I was coming into the sport as well. And I, I can't remember if it was an interview or what it was, but I was teaching at the time and, and kind of trying to make the same decision <laughs> around the same time. Um, I, I had a, a really good year in 2013, but it, I was still very new to the sport. And, uh, I, I don't, we didn't, I don't think we met quite yet um, at that point, but I, I remember listening to an interview with you, a fellow teacher, a fellow educator, and, and was it social studies that you were teaching or what, what was the subject that, that you taught? Um, yeah, I was duly certified in uh, social studies and special education. So I did like kind of a combination. I had years where I would just exclusively work in special ed. And I had, a, a, I think one, one year I was exclusively in social studies. And then the last two years I was like a 50-50, which was kind of, an interesting experience where you're like, you're kind of, uh, flexing both of your, your expertise, so to speak. And, um, yeah, that was my kind of education career. Yeah. So we, we were both teaching post or mid recession. So, so I, I was in a similar boat where it was kind of like, okay, so you're certified to do this and you're certified to do this. Can you get certified to do this and this and this? Because, um, we're trying not to fire people, but every time right. someone, Hires, we're not going to replace them either. So, mm-hmm. so we could teach five different subjects in a in a school day. Um, and I, I, to be honest, I I miss teaching in in a lot of ways. Like there there are aspects of it, not every part about it, but I I genuinely miss that opportunity to like have that face to face interaction with students and. Uh, especially at, at such impressionable ages, and and sometimes be the only positive connection mm-hmm. they have with an adult. Um, so I definitely miss that that aspect, but I I certainly don't. I I even liked the challenge of trying to like juggle the different balls, you know, of the different subjects and and really learning how to troubleshoot, I guess, um, and work our way through that. But I um, it, it was certainly stressful through some of those years too. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, teaching is something I'll, I love and always will. And I definitely didn't step away from it like you as like, cause I needed to get out or couldn't, couldn't uh, deal with that as a profession so much, but like, you know, it's just like life nowadays. I think there's just opportunities that present themselves and you have to decide whether to, to go after them or kind of stay the course. And, um, and, uh, yeah. And with, with uh, with teaching, it's like, when you're on, especially if you're working any extracurriculars, you're on, it's like, that's a full day and you might, you might not see the sunlight during the winter months. (laughs) Um, and, uh, it's nice having a little more of a break, I guess, in the summer and, you know, guaranteed weekends and holidays and stuff like that. But then it does really kind of pigeonhole you into that schedule where, where it can be stressful and you can, you can really, really eat up a lot of time during certain parts of the year that, that makes it kind of difficult, I think, to really pursue an athletic career at its fullest. So, um, or even, you know, launch a coaching business and kind of be doing that on the side. Cause then you either feel like you have plenty of time to do it or not nearly enough time to do it. And that's not really fair for the clients either. So, uh, 
it's just, uh, it's, it's one of those things I think nowadays, like if you're a curious person, there's a lot of things you'd like to do, but ultimately you have to pick a couple and be good at them versus trying to like spread yourself too thin over the course of everything you'd like to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly, um, I admired you from afar, um, when you were out in Wisconsin and I was out in Oregon and we were both teaching and, and trying to <laughs> figure things out as ultra runners. Um, and, uh, and I was happy. It seems like we kind of both made similar decisions around the same t- period of time as well. Um, to the opportunity to coach uh, remotely kind of opened up, um, and um, and and we we both joined the ultra team as well as as part of our, our journey to um, to pursue ultra running. So that's uh, that's originally where I think we met in person. Was it a an ultra team summit sort of Athlete thing summit probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember picking your brain on, on some things. And, um, and one thing that just really stood out to me and, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show. And one of the reasons I didn't hesitate when you asked if I wanted to participate in, in your, um, record effort is that, um, for, for as much as you have accomplished, you, um, you carry yourself very well. You're very humble. Um, there's no ego or presumption (laughs) about you. Um, I think if, if most people were to meet you, they, um, they would have to do some research and some digging to figure out who you are because you're not the kind of person that would toot your own horn. And, um, and that's certainly something that, um, is admirable and, and that, um, I wish there was a bit more of <laughs> in sport and just in life in general. So, um, so that's why we have podcasts so that I can get you to talk about yourself. <laughs> you. Um, so in addition to setting multiple world records, um, you, you have a podcast and you, you do coach, um, one of the things that distinguishes you in addition to just being able to run really fast, um, for a really long time is, uh, is also your diet. And, um, in fact, I've, I've had athletes that I coach, including one of our former guests, um, Patsy Ramirez. Um, she, she had some questions that were kind of beyond my level of expertise. And I knew that you specialized a bit more in, um, in this particular, subject. And so I, I referred her to you to, to get some help with, um, fat adaptation and, um, low carb, high fat type diet. How would you, how would you describe your diet or your nutrition plan or whatever you want to refer to it as? And, um, and then can you tell us about that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, it's kind of fun to talk about in the podcast stuff because you can kind of get into it a little more. Cause I think sometimes like I get, it gets a little confusing for folks because uh, it's. It, I live such a weird lifestyle compared to kind of an average person in, in terms of like energy expenditure where like, you know, I have the, those peak training weeks where I'm hitting 140, maybe 150 miles or something like that. But I also have weeks like I did last week where, you know, I'm not running at all or barely running at all. So it's like I have these like drastic or polarizing energy demands throughout the course of the year. And, uh, to me, what that means is there's not going to be a real clean, like, this is what I eat every day 
type of a program that's going to fit nicely within to the, that framework. And a lot of people I think are looking for that. They want to know like, well, what do you give me a sample day or give me a sample week so that they can kind of plug and play or, you know, try it out. And, and I, I, that's, that's where I usually kind of like take a step back and say, okay, let's look at this like kind of pragmatically. So um, I follow periodized training throughout the course of the year and it, maybe differs than what a lot of folks think of when they think of ultra marathon in the sense that think of ultra marathon, you think a lot of long, slow running, but, uh, from a coaching philosophical standpoint, I think there's a lot of value in some of the, even the shorter interval sessions that you would do that you'd see like a little more often in like the more traditional endurance events. I just think it's about an order of operations more than it is about whether to do them or not to do them. So I'll spend once I'm if I'm aerobically a fit enough. So if like my aerobic threshold is at the point that I want it, then I'm going to enter like a training block where I'm going to do some short VO2 max type workouts. And then once I kind of develop that system a little bit, I'm going to move into doing some more lactic threshold type work. And then as once that starts to develop or if I finalize development with that, I'm going to move on to probably something very specific to the intensity that I'm going to race at. So for me, that's oftentimes 100 miles, which tends to be just right at or maybe a little below my aerobic threshold on average. Uh, so it 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 just is a specificity thing where I'm trying to get more specific towards race intensity as I move closer to that. So when I'm kind of trying to fuel those efforts, I'm looking at that within the context of what I'm doing. So when I'm doing a lot of just aerobic stuff, I'm keeping my carbs relatively low because, uh, you know, for those long, slow runs, I can efficiently burn fat at a very high rate and, uh, and not necessarily need to do like a deep plunge into my muscle glycogen like I would if I was doing a lot of lactic threshold work and trying to like really build volume within that. So for me, it's kind of like, I want to, the way I like to look at it is like, rather than looking at it as like a ketogenic diet or even a high fat, low carb diet is like, I like to look at it as like, well, how fat adapted do I want to be for a specific event? And, um, once I kind of know that it's not about like demonizing carbohydrates or restricting carbohydrates altogether, it's about using them as a tool to kind of fill the gap. So like my goal on race day is essentially going to be to defend muscle glycogen to the, to the degree that I can get to the end of the race and still have, uh, have that energy substrate available enough to me to be able to kind of stay strong and finish, finish hard versus kind of fading out. So if, uh, if I get what I would consider like as fat adapted as I could possibly get, that kind of comes at a trade-off to a degree in terms of what I'm probably gonna be able to tolerate in terms of exogenous carbohydrates. So I don't necessarily want to go to like a zero carb diet, uh, and kind of sacrifice my ability to be able to use carbohydrates in a meaningful way on race day. Um, but I also don't want to go to a moderate or high carbohydrate in my context, because then it's going to mean I'm going to have to probably take in more carbohydrates on race day, uh, which can sometimes be the determining factor as to, I think, which what, what route a person takes. So, um, in ultra marathon, I think the big one is just stomach distress. So if you're the type of person who, has a really hard time getting in enough of the enough nutrition during an event, then, you know, maybe a moderate or high carbohydrate diet isn't the best route for you. You might want to try to minimize what you need. You might want to try to minimize the amount of carbohydrate you need in race in order to defend 
muscle glycogen in a meaningful way. Uh, if you're someone who can, you know, you see these folks out there too, who they seemingly can eat 400 plus calories an hour all day long. You know, that person probably doesn't really need to be super fat adapted because they can defend muscle glycogen with exogenous carbohydrate at a much higher rate. One thing I kind of learned earlier in my ultra running career was like when I flexed up to some of those higher ranges of what is on paper plausible to try to get in, I started getting more of a like a bloated tight stomach and I hadn't done a hundred miler yet at that point. So I was more kind of just projecting forward. Like if this is how I feel after 50 miles, there's no way I'm going to be able to do another 50 miles with that protocol. Um, so for me, some of it was just an effort to reduce my need for intra race fueling. And, uh, you know, I've been doing it for almost nine years now. So I've kind of pinpointed that for me about 40 grams an hour on race day tends to be kind of like a great, like, like a race fueling strategy where it's not enough to really get to the point where it's going to cause a digestive issue, but it's also not low enough where I'm gradually depleting muscle glycogen in a way that I'm going to get to the end and my body's going to kind of downregulate intensity to preserve what little bit is left. Uh, and what that ends up meaning for me in training is I usually just like this, there's a lot of trial and error with my, with myself at first, just kind of trying to pinpoint like what outside, like where, where does this fall with my lifestyle versus like a strict ketogenic diet or a high carb diet? Cause I think a lot of times people think it's one or the other versus like all these kind of middle ground areas. And what I found is when I do strict ketogenic, um, I feel fine in off season on structured training. I even feel fine if, if I'm starting to build up volume at like aerobic threshold and, and below. Uh, but once I start introducing some of those more intense section sessions, like the VO2 max stuff or the lactic threshold stuff, um, I feel like I just don't have that punch that perceived effort at that intensity is, is increased. So, um, by bringing up my carbohydrate a bit during those phases of training, uh, and usually that's around like maybe 20%. Uh, on the odd occasion, maybe up to 30% of my intake from carbohydrate seems to be enough to uh, speed up muscle glycogen replenishment fast enough within the context of my specific metabolism to be enough. And to give you some context with that is like, if you, if the last time I got lab work done, my peak fat oxidation rate was like 1.56 grams per minute. So um, that's a big byproduct of diet. And then also a byproduct of the training. Um, you know, all endurance athletes, if you just do a lot of running, you're going to increase your fat oxidation rate. Um, but you can move that needle even further by manipulating diet a little bit. So at that rate of fat oxidation, I probably just don't need to be doing like, uh, you know, like a 70% plus carbohydrate intake to be able to stay on top of that in order to, to get my workouts done. Um, and that's just basically my, my personal experience with it. I've always kind of followed this process of if the workouts are going according to plan and, you know, the intra-race fueling strategies are working, then I'm heading in the right direction. And that kind of just like led into other people getting interested in why I was doing that and asking about it. And then ultimately me working with other people at, at times and trying to figure out like where their sweet spot is, or, you know, I've, I've, coached people away from it as well. I've had people in the past where it's like, you know, they're, it, it's kind of clear, like, this isn't going to work for you or for whatever your context is different than mine. And you might want to consider a different approach. Um, and that's kind of the interesting thing that I find with it is like, it, it goes back to kind of what we were talking about before, where I think with the sport of ultra marathoning, where the intensity is as low as it is, 
but the duration is so long. There's all these other variables and components that kind of come into play that are maybe either not part of traditional endurance or not as heavily weighted. It just opens up the door, I think, for a little more variety and a little more need to kind of individualize things. And especially in a sport where the umbrella covers 50K all the way up to like, you know, some of these events that are like multi-days or six-day events and things like that. Some are up in mountains and technical terrain, others are on flat tracks and everything in between that it's just like, you know, you're going to have like such a variance in what's going to work for people and depending on what their primary goals are and what their key races are and things like that. There's a lot of uh, opportunity, I think, to like explore some of these alternative approaches or what would be considered an alternative approach and kind of conventional endurance fueling strategy. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to to explain this to me and, and to our listeners. I I receive a number of questions about nutrition as part of my role as a coach, and both because I I I only have you know basic I, I it, it's part of what I do so I read as much as I can and I and I have taken the courses as part of my undergraduate work as in exercise science and things but you know things change science changes fads come and go um, and so I try and stay current but uh, to this date I haven't. I haven't met or heard or read anyone describe at least this process as well as you have. Uh, I know that you, you've helped a number of athletes. Um, one person who, who some of our listeners may recognize is, is Jeff Browning. I know Jeff follows some similar, um, aspects to the, the diet, um, that you adhere to, um, and, and you helped him kind of start that process a few years back and he's he's certainly had really good success um in fact he's he's almost not even the same runner that he was <laughs> uh doesn't look the same doesn't run the same he's he's getting faster the older he gets and he's lighter and leaner and all the rest um i mean i remember i, I raced him once and i got I, I got lost. I was way off course and, and came back probably last 20 minutes and I still kicked his butt in a 50 K. And so <laughs> and that wouldn't happen right now <laughs> and at a 50 yeah. K really not at a hundred miles. And, um, and that was on his home courses at altitude and I was from sea level. So like <laughs> a very different person, um, than he was even a few years back. And, um, and I think, I don't, I don't think he would hesitate at all to say that a huge piece of that was changing the way he, fuels throughout the day and certainly um when he races and, and that sort of thing um but that's that's also something that i i'd like to go into a little bit more detail you you used terms like endogenous and exogenous um so just just to clarify endogenous is is already within the body correct and exogenous is is things that we put into our body is that mm-hmm. yeah and terms? i think like if we're looking at it in the most basic sense, like essentially like on race day, you have access to kind of two endogenous fuel substrates and that's kind of like your muscle glycogen and then your, your body fat. So the ratios at which your body's going to tap into those are going to vary depending on like your training, depending on your genetics and depending on your diet. So like, um, it all plays into when, when, when you're skewing towards burning more fat, that's one way, that's one arm of defending muscle glycogen is by burning more fat than carbohydrates because you're just not going to tap into it as much. Then you get into the exogenous stuff, which I think like you want to minimize fat intake on race day just because like when you look at just a fuel 
availability standpoint, even the leanest endurance athletes have a much greater fat tank than they do a muscle glycogen tank. So the depletion of that is really a non-issue, even for some of these longer events that, that like you and I are doing. But the one that you can deplete, even if you're following a very, very strict low carb diet is your muscle glycogen. It all really just depends on like your intensity and where your crossover points are and like where your ratios fall within that. So, um, you know, for me, I feel like on a good hundred mile day when fueling's going well, you know, 150 to 155 beats per minute isn't a range that I'm afraid to get into. Uh, but like if I were to do that without taking in that exogenous carbohydrate source, uh, my suspicions is that I would, I would not be able to sustain that heart rate. I would dip in enough to my, uh, muscle glycogen where I'd get myself to the end of the race and be depleted enough where my body's trying to kind of downregulate intensity to pull me away from pulling me closer to heart rates where I'm burning exclusively fat. So, um, that's kind of another interesting component to it. And, you know, we've seen it again with this, this COVID-19 experience, we're learning things because people are doing oddball stuff that maybe wouldn't otherwise. And, you know, Mike McKnight did, did a hundred miler a couple of weeks ago on no calories. And he talked to me about that beforehand. And he talked to, uh, Dr. Dan Plews out of Auckland just to see like, well, is this something that's possible? And the, the, the message from Dan, who I would defer to on basically anything physiologically based is, uh, was like, well, if you run at a low enough heart rate and you follow a diet like you do, you know, there's a point where you're just not going to be tapping into your, your muscle glycogen in a meaningful enough way. So if you stay there and not flex over, you're, you're probably going to feel, you're not going to run as fast as you possibly could because you're not going to be able to access those heart rate ranges that would get you to your peak performance. But in terms of just finishing it and finishing it in a relatively decent, decent spot, it's possible. So I think like that to me, that, that like experience that Mike did highlights a lot of kind of cool things or things that people should consider with this is that like, um, there's no like necessarily, there's not necessarily a right or a wrong way to do this. And you shouldn't necessarily look at these things as good or bad, but you should be looking at them as tools and decide which tools do you want to use and at what capacity. So, you know, for someone following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, they might need to use that tool of exogenous carbohydrate in a higher, higher frequency on race day and probably a higher frequency in training just to get their body used to fueling on race day at the capacity they're trying to do. Whereas if someone wants to minimize the use of that tool for whatever reason, they probably want to like, you know, defend their muscle glycogen by getting their body to burn higher rates of fat at different intensities. And, and, and there's a lot of middle ground with that too. Like for me, I found my sweet spot is to stay low carb enough to be able to get away with about 40 grams an hour. You know, there's people I've seen that goes lower than that. And there's people I've seen that goes higher than that, um, with a kind of a similar dietary, uh, choice, I guess is the way to say it. Okay. And, and so, like you mentioned, even though you're, well, you, you've said a couple of things, you, you said that you, just like you periodize your training, you, you periodize the, um, the breakdown or the, the percentage of, of fats versus carbs and protein in your, the, the macronutrients, so to speak in your, in your daily diet. And then similarly, um, you fuel differently with these exogenous fuels, um, depending on, on what the intensity is. Um, and so timing is a, is a factor there, but also, um, just the, just the amount, um, 
based on the duration and the, de- and the intensity, the demands of, of that specific run. Um, I just want to clarify, you, you do consume carbs, exogenous carbs, um, while you are performing, correct? Like when you're, when you're pushing in an effort that's going to deplete your glycogen stores. So when you did your hundred mile, um, effort, you, you were still consuming a form of carbohydrate, um, in liquid form for the most part, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, usually, yeah, usually I'm doing mostly liquid. I'm doing mostly carbohydrate on race day. And it, when I, when I have a of day that plays out as I envision, it's usually about 40 grams per hour is kind of like that sweet spot that I found for me is like, it's not, I'm not tempting any type of stomach distress, uh, historically at least. And, uh, by going, when I go much lower than that, I feel like it gets just, it feels a little less sustainable when I'm getting up to the heart rates. I know I can tolerate for a hundred miles. So that's kind of how I've arrived at that. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's much a field test as anything when it gets to that point. But like, um, that's kind of how I've gone about it. And like when, when I'm doing the training stuff too, you're right that like the timing is important. Um, at least for me, it has been. And sometimes it's the consideration of kind of what's next. So like when I'm in a training block where I may be doing more block training, where I might have two days in a row that are similar workouts, but uh, relatively taxing energetically, you know, that might be a point in training where I'm going to raise up my exogenous carbohydrate intake, uh, during my day-to-day lifestyle a little more than I would say like in an off season or a, or a more of an aerobic lower moderate volume point in the training season. Uh, just because like you accelerate everything when you run that much, when you're like as endurance athletes, when we're in peak training, essentially we're putting our metabolism on fast forward. So like, it's not, it's not controversial by any stretch of the imagination to, to say that carbohydrate is the quickest way to replenish muscle glycogen. So when I have a scenario like that, where maybe I'm going to do like a 30 miler on Saturday and another one on Sunday, I'm going to be a little more like a little, a little more liberal with my carbohydrate usage after that second or the, after that first session so that I can kind of speed up and make sure I'm going into that second session with enough muscle glycogen to kind of not feel like I'm sacrificing performance or workout execution for that. Whereas, you know, in a different scenario where maybe I'm doing just a single long run at a relatively low intensity, and then I have an off day the next day, you know, I might not bring back as much or any carbohydrate for that workout because I'm pretty confident I can lean on my muscle glycogen to get through that one. And then I'm going to have an off day afterwards. So that that fast forward of my metabolism after the workout is done is a little slower and I just have more time to kind of replenish, uh, through other, other modes or just, uh, you know, not necessarily as, as tight of a window. So what would be some examples of, of the types of carbs, like some fuel examples? I realize this is an end of one and I, I yeah. appreciate and respect your emphasis on individualization. That's, that's what you and I do as coaches. And, um, and it's not just, to, to boost business. It's, it's just the reality. <laughs> we are all very different. Um, but, but just to give people some ideas of what they might consider, um, what, what would you do on a day like between doubles, like what types of carbs and, and other recovery fuels would you use versus a, a day where it's, you can rely more on, uh, on the, the muscle glycogen, um, and just the, the fact that you are going to be resting the next day to, 
replenish that over a longer period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think like for me, it's, this is probably just as much personal as it is necessarily like the right carbohydrate source to use. But for me, like I tend to bring back a lot of like potatoes, uh, berries, melons, raw honey. Um, every once in a while I'll do some sourdough bread. Uh, my wife loves sourdough bread. So that's usually in the house. (laughs) Um, and those are tend to be kind of like the go-tos. I'll, I'll do a little bit of dairy that, uh, not like full fat or I shouldn't say full fat, but like, uh, you know, dairy that is not, uh, like hard cheeses that I'll get a little bit of carbohydrate in from time to time. If it's like an intra run fuel source, I'll use, uh, S fuels race plus, which is their, they're a high fat, low carb company, but they, they are kind of in line with what I do in terms of using carbs strategically. So one of their products has 16 grams of carbohydrate in it. So I'll use that too, especially if it's during a workout. Um, and usually when I'm working with people though, like one thing we'll do is like, ultimately you need this approach to be sustainable for yourself or there's really no point in doing it. And I think I, that's the way I kind of view any kind of dietary habit is the first question you should be asking yourself, is this something you can do for the rest of your life or at least for the duration of what a long enough duration to find out if it's something that you can sustain And, um, you know, for people who want to do a strict ketogenic diet, you're getting into like a really, uh, you're getting into a territory where you're basically eliminating carbohydrates in any meaningful, any, any meaningful amount. So, uh, one thing I'll tell folks is like, let's you, let's leverage this to make it sustainable. So think about maybe some carbohydrate sources that you either abstain from or, eat in very small quantities that you used to like, because most people are coming from a background in at least a moderate carbohydrate diet. Uh, and then we'll use those as kind of their kind of re- their, their carb sources so that they don't feel like necessarily that the diet is as restrictive as it could be if it was more online with like a strict ketogenic approach. So then it just opens up the door for like a lot of different like personal kind of like preferences and things like that. And Um, I find my, my clients who kind of look at it through that lens tend to stick with it and not feel like they're being as restricted because they're really not taking anything off the table at that point. They're just weighing pros and cons in terms of like the ratios and the amounts of things that they're having at, at, at any given time. That's really good. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. And, um, as I said, uh, while speaking with, with Dave Scott, while you were running, um, I really appreciate that you recognize how polarizing discussion of nutrition and diet can be. And, and I've never once heard you demonize another diet or, or try and, um, speak condescendingly toward people who choose to do things differently than you. Um, and I, I think even, for you as a, as a coach and as an athlete, I, I know there's a tendency for people to, to have to get tribal and, and, to, but the way I view it is like a lot of times it forces people to like paint themselves into a corner. And I appreciate that you, you don't do that, that you, you're happy to speak to the science and, and to your own experience. And, and, but I, I love that piece about just trying to make it sustainable. Like, sure. If someone wants to go be keto for six months or three months or whatever, that there are certainly some benefits that may come of that, but if there aren't going to be lasting benefits, if it's just going to be a flash in the pan, kind of like, Oh, well, I lost some weight, but they still, they're still going to have to adjust so that it's, it's sustainable, um, whether it be for mental or physical or, mm-hmm. or um, 
hormonal reasons. Um, there, it, I, I'm all about sustainability and I, I feel like um, you are as well. And, and as coaches, that's, uh, it's just a lot more fulfilling to work with people <laughs> who are thinking long-term and not just, mm-hmm. I want a silver bullet to get me from this goal to this goal um, at all costs. And, and sometimes that's what it is. It's at all costs. And it's like, but, but why? Like, what do you, what do you have to show for it? You, you're back. Sometimes, sometimes people will relapse to even be worse than where they started if they don't um, follow a sustainable plan. So, um, yeah. I really appreciate that. Well, and I think one of the things that I try to lean on with when I'm, when I'm talking about this is just like the way I would have taught anything when I was in, when I was a teacher. And I think like most people, they are going to respond more positively to like having options or having choices so that ultimately they feel like they're making the choice versus being told what to do. <laughs> and yeah. it's, uh, you know, I always, I always get kind of, I like, I'm always kind of surprised at that when you get folks who are, and this isn't any particular diet, it's probably uniform across the board, whether it's kind of keto, high carb or anything in between is you'll get people who are absolute with it and they're, they'll, they'll be quick to say, this is the way to do it. This is the only way to do it. If you don't, you're wrong. And like, you know, that just makes, I feel like that makes people want to do the opposite of what they're trying to advocate for. So it doesn't necessarily put them in the right, in the right, uh, the, the right educational component to even get their own message put across in the right way. So I try to keep that that part of it open. And then I also, I want to work with people who are legitimately interested in kind of learning and, and, and responding to it in a way that is going to actually work for them. Cause like you said, like if I, if I try to like shove it down someone's throat and make it work when it's not going to work, they're going to go home frustrated and upset and ultimately back to square one at best. And then I don't really gain anything long-term from that either. So it just seems to me that when we're working at the individual level, problem solving and finding some options that will work should be the end goal versus like, here's the approach you should do. We have to find a way to get you there no matter what. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Um, now on that topic of learning, you mentioned Dr. Dan Plews. Is there anyone else or any other books or articles that you would recommend that we can uh, refer people to? Um, or, or even your own site, any articles that you've written where if people want to learn more about at least this approach to a sustainable lower carb or fat adaptation approach to um, training and, and eating um, or fueling? Yeah, what yeah. So would you recommend? I think one, one book I think is a great kind of starter for folks is this book by uh, Dark, Dr. Mark Bubbs. It's called uh, Peak. Um he did it. He did this book where he kind of took a dive into like where kind of the science is at with sports nutrition and just sports in general from a, just a holistic standpoint of like training methodology, recovery, nutrition. And then he goes through kind of like a lot of variety within different sports. So you can kind of pick out which one is most applicable to your, your level of sport. And he has a chapter. He also goes into like, here's where some of the more like the newer studies that we don't necessarily have a huge body of yet, but look promising. And he references uh, a lot of the work from Dr. Dan Plews in there when they're talking about endurance athletes who want to kind of lean a little more on a high fat approach. So that's kind of a good starting point. That'll probably lead you to some other stuff. Um, 
Dan Plews specifically does a lot of work with uh, S fuels to do like videos and primers and things like that. So his, his guidance is what's leaned on heavily um, on their website, sfuelsgolonger.com. They got a ton of resources for that. And on, on his website, which is Endure IQ, is where he kind of houses a lot of his current stuff and some of the stuff that his grad students are, are working on at the moment. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I believe on on one of the, your podcasts that you host, um, I I listened to an interview or maybe a couple interviews with um, Dr. Tim Noakes as well, and I know that he um, he was once a very strong proponent of the traditional endurance diet of the high carb, low fat um, diet, and has since um, very controversially <laughs> switched. Yeah on that um I, I mean which led to all sorts of things uh it, academically and professionally um but he's i mean he's he's one of the most prolific writers about the sport of endurance in terms of his his books the um, lore of running and waterlogged um, but he's also written extensively about the diet and and he has reversed course so to speak um and and it sounds similar to uh, dave scott who you know is a six-time ironman champion um that he as a coach and as an athlete was carbs 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 just like most of us were raised to think uh, with our pasta dinners and our goos and um bagels i mean i i, I used to bring like a, a pack of six bagels and bananas and you know, every, every possible carb I could on the bus to my cross country meets as a, as a high school kid growing up in my, you know, blue Gatorade or Powerade or whatever it was, <laughs> it was like straight sugar, you know, and, and starches. And, um, and now, you know, maybe it's in part that some of the distances that we're doing are a little bit more than a 5k. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but that, that paradigm has, has certainly been turned on its head, even by some who are the the authorities um, in the sport who once adhered to personally uh, a higher carb diet and then out of necessity <laughs> have had to change that diet because of the onset of diabetes uh, or heart disease or obesity or things like that. So, yeah, um, you know, that, that's an interesting side of things too. Cause it's like, we're, we obviously you want to perform optimally, but then there's also that kind of like question that's looming in the background of that, what expense or at what cost. And, you know, there are the guys out there like uh, Dr. or like Professor Tim Noakes and actually Don Ritchie too, who probably maps our trajectory in the sport even closer being an ultra marathon who, uh, you know, he, he had got type two diabetes at I think age 52. And he says it's, you know, I mean, this is an individual, so it's a, it's a essentially a, an anecdote, but like, you know, he says, well, I was just pounding tons and tons of carbohydrates and uh, you know, it does make me wonder like what the aftermath of a career worth of like, you know, five, sometimes 6,000 mile training years that are fueled with like carbohydrates at a high level, what that kind of does in the long term. Um, and I do wonder too, though, like some of that could also just be the relative lifestyle is kind of hard to abruptly change. Like if you go from training at that volume, obviously you're going to have to fuel that. And if you're feeling with a ton of carbohydrates, individual like ability to scale that back upon retirement may not be ideal, which is going to probably be a 
bigger driver of diabetes is just the overconsumption of anything. So like, you know, and, and, and you're going to maybe have scenarios where people are taking in double the resting metabolic rate during their big training seasons and things like that. And then when they retire, it's not easy perhaps to reduce your caloric intake by 50% when it's a faster acting source in certain circumstances. And that could be why those guys were experiencing some of those negative after effects or something like that. But um, I think we do have a lot to learn. I think even within the more like traditional endurance training sphere, there's like, there's at least some awareness of like seasonal approaches where you don't necessarily like none of these Olympic track and field athletes or marathoners are following a ketogenic diet or or probably even a high fat, low carb diet that I'm aware of anyway. But what they maybe are going to be playing around with a little more, with a little more curiosity is like, do I really need to be eating 70% of my diet from carbohydrate when I'm in the off season? or when I'm building my aerobic threshold up. And and you might see a little bit of nuance there, a little bit of nuance about like not necessarily taking like a gel every two to three gels every hour during their long runs and things like that. And, and just like getting a little more particular with the, the intricacies within a training plan versus just kind of plugging and playing a specific macro macronutrient ratio all year long. Yeah. Well, I, I think there are differences as we age, and um, I mean that's one thing that I try and explain. I, maybe it's not a good analogy, but I I often say that that nutrition and even race fueling plans are kind of like footwear. You know, you you want to try on a couple different options and maybe even vary them. Um, not not so much to try and copy other people, but just to try and see what works for you and 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 you. But view it in in the long term. Obviously, you don't want to practice new things like the week of your goal race or the day, the day of your goal race. Um, but you can certainly try some of those different ideas on, but I mean, it, it, even, even with the same amount of training volume, I mean, I, I remember, I remember maybe it was my freshman year in college. Like I, I had a meal plan. And so my teammates and I would go to the, the cafeteria after our afternoon practice. Most of us ran in the mornings we would sit there for like two hours and probably consume two or 3000 calories. And then usually by like, so that was maybe like 5 PM or maybe 4 PM to 6 PM, go to the library for a couple hours and then usually order two pizzas and maybe (laughs) ice cream on my way home, like every single night (laughs) in college. And it was like, well, I have to run in the morning and, you know, and then I, and then I was eating all carbs, you know, like oatmeal and ramen (laughs) bananas and then again it's like just all you can eat buffet after practice every single day and and it was rare that i couldn't it wasn't a contest it wasn't like a you know a pissing match after practice like I, it was usually on my own i'd eat i did at least one and a half pizzas as my second dinner after <laughs> a lot and, and usually at least like a half a gallon ice cream every single night and um and that was on maybe a hundred miles a week. I mean, it wasn't like I was doing 140 or 150 and now, uh, you know, I'm not doing that kind of volume and I'm usually not running twice a day, but I, I'm usually good after half a pizza. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's not, that's not the same, but that's not my second dinner. That's like, that's my dinner, you know, maybe salad or something like that. And, um, and that can still be after, you know, 10, 15, you know, one or two hours of running. And I, I'm good with that. And, uh, and if I were to try and eat any more, whether it be more ice cream or more, uh, stuff, more 
carbs or protein or anything into my body, I, I, it would be uncomfortable. I wouldn't be able to sleep. And, um, and so I, I think in some ways, you know, that was more than 20 years ago, my metabolism has changed as well. I, and I consume significantly less during the day than I did before. I mean, probably a third of the calories that I, that I consumed <laughs> before. Well, I, moved, so. I mean, that also kind of just highlights another kind of nuance that, that we're going to have when we're looking at the individual athletes we're working with too. It's like most of my coaching clients, although it's changed a little bit in the last couple of years, I'm getting younger clients, I think, than I did when I first started coaching for sure. But the majority of my clients are like middle age. You know, they're 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 not folks who are going to be putting in 150 mile training weeks. You know, like a big volume training week for a lot of my clients might be like 60 or 70 miles. And you know, they have a, a nine to five job, they've got a family, they got all sorts of other things to worry, and they want to stay generally healthy too. So, like, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that kind of separate them from a contextual standpoint from say like, you know, an elite 10 K runner it in their like early to mid twenties who, like you said, like you get some of those scenarios where it seems like they could eat the entire cafeteria and not gain an ounce. Whereas, you know, most people in their middle age doing this as a hobby are probably not in that boat. So yeah, you know, I, finding- I, I, weigh, I weigh 10 or 15 pounds more, maybe 20 pounds more than I did at that time. <laughs> 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 so it's like, eating a third of the, the amount and um I, I weigh I, I weighed 145 then and I'm, I'm usually 160 to 165 these days so um yeah off of a lot less fuel so <laughs> um I didn't mean to interrupt you I apologize about that no no that's fine. I, I don't think I had anything else to add no it was, it was, you were on a good track um one thing that came to mind as you were as you were saying that though uh, this is a question I'm not asking for free coaching help, but um, maybe it'll it'll send more people your way. But one of the questions I get all the time is, you know, the timing of the consumption of macronutrients. And so if someone were to try and even just adjust or tweak their diet a little bit, I know it, neither of us is in the business of, you know, the quick fix or the silver bullet, but is is there a time of day that people um, I would assume it's in relation to when they run as well, but is there a time of day or something that people can do in the morning or at night, you know, should they, should they do, um, should they fast? Should they, should they only eat, you know, um, fats and proteins at night or in the morning or before you run after you run? Are there any generalizable rules of thumb that they could be applicable to, to the general population, uh, high achieving, but still something that would be sustainable that, that would give people something to at least if they were to just take one or two things to try for a bit, what, what would be some recommendations if, if people wanted to experiment with, with some of what we've discussed? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think like with a lot of this stuff, I'm always trying to meet people where they're at. So, um, you know, some people they'll come to me with like, they're, they're eager to get started and they're like, where do I begin? And they're going to, they're going to, you can tell like right out the gate, they're going to do it right. And they're going to just like do exactly what they're told. And, you know, I think when you're, anytime you're doing a dietary overhaul, you want to be mindful of when you do something like that. Like when I did, when I switched, I waited till the off season so that I'd have a lot more flexibility to kind of work through some of the, the growing pains and some of the metabolic switching or scaling, I guess more is probably a better way to say it than, uh, then trying to implement this like during my peak training phase or like, like you said before, like three weeks out from your goal race or something like that. And for those folks, it's like, you know, I think generally speaking, it's not a bad idea to be a little stricter in terms of like 
following a more strict ketogenic diet for a few weeks just to kind of like get your body into that 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 system of metabolism and then once you start getting back into training being open-minded to bring some carbohydrates back uh during some of those times where you'd maybe maybe need to lean on them a little more um but for someone who's like trying to just like say i want to get a little better at burning fat but not necessarily go high fat low carb but just maybe burn a little higher rates of fat at a given point so they can maybe take in one less gel per hour or something like that on race day. I think there's a lot of more little like actionable things that you can probably do to get to that point. And one of them might be, you know, not eating before one of your, your, your long runs or your morning sessions or something like that. So that you're kind of leveraging your overnight, um, your overnight fast, so to speak, uh, and carrying it into your run. So you're just encouraging your body to burn higher rates of fat through that. Um, like you, you kind of hit on one too, is like maybe rather than saying, I'm going to overhaul my entire nutrition, say, well, I'm, I'm eating three meals a day instead of having carb heavy breakfast, carb heavy lunch, carb heavy dinner. I'm going to pick one of those and just go low carb for one meal and just kind of bring that, that bring that ratio down a little bit and just kind of see what happens. Um, those tend to be, I think good strategies for people to play around with and then ultimately decide if it's something they want to take a step further on. I've done that approach with people in the past where we just change one meal and we just see kind of how workouts do. We see how things are going. And then um, if they like it and it's something that they even think is maybe a preferred way of eating, then maybe we try another meal. And then, you know, once you start scaling it down to that, you're getting pretty into the high fat, low carb uh, side of things. Um, if like two of your three meals are, are more like that. And then, then it just kind of find, then it's just kind of playing around with where, where their individual like uh, spots are going to be like, what do you need carbohydrate wise to make sure this workout's going to go well? So, you know, if I'm working with someone from the other side of the spectrum where they come in to, with me and they're like, I'm following a strict ketogenic diet and I notice I feel great on my aerobic runs, but if I do something that's a little more varied in pace or higher in intensity, I feel like I don't have that last gear. We're going to look at like, well, where are some points that you can bring some carbohydrates back to try to like punch the gas, so to speak. And that can range a little bit on their preferences too. Like sometimes if they really like this, the, the meals they're having within the ketogenic context, we'll bring it back during the workout itself. So they don't necessarily have to change too much of their, their normal meals. Um, or if they're like more inclined to say, I don't really want to eat during a run. In fact, lot some people are like, they hate that if they can avoid it, they're going to. And, you know, for them, we're just going to add a little bit of carbohydrate in those meals, like surrounding their key sessions. So like if they have a big workout Friday morning, we'll maybe bring back some carbohydrates for dinner the night before, or if they have a hard workout, say Thursday afternoon, we might just add some carbohydrates to their breakfast or an early lunch or something like that to kind of try to just, you know, give them the fuel that they're going to use on that particular workout. Perfect. That's really, that's really helpful. Um, what are some, what are some fuels that are common sources of like high fat fuels that you use, um, that, that people may not even realize could, could be a meal or could, or could be, could provide you with that, um, like nutrient dense fuel that, that you might think of, whether it be something to have with your lunch or for dinner or, or breakfast, or do you have a few ideas of things that people could try? Some of you Yeah. Ago? Yeah. Yeah, I think like some of my go-tos, I, I, I usually try to structure a lot of um, 
kind of whole food options. And then based on my energy requirements, I start to get a little more creative. So kind of like my core stuff, I'll do, I'll do a lot of like eggs and things like that. Um, I'll do like fatty cuts of meat, um, seeds and nuts and that sort of stuff, uh, as kind of just like staples that I'll be having, uh, more or less during the year. And then when I'm in those phases of training where I'm burning a lot more calories and just need to up my energy intake a bit, that's where I'll kind of lean on some, some more of the oil based things like, uh, olive oils or butters or coconut oil and things like that to kind of add into that. Um, even nut butters too, cause they just, you tend to, uh, you know, when I'm kind of in lower training or off season, you know, you can eat a, you eat a few, like, like a handful of mixed nuts or something versus like diving into the, the peanut butter or almond butter jar. <laughs> you can put a ton of calories in with the, with the, the processed stuff a little bit. So like, uh, you want, I think you choose wisely with that, depending on what your goals are from an, from an energy need standpoint. Uh, but those are some of the kind of the go-tos. Uh, I just like, I think a lot of times, like if you don't, if you don't go for like the low fat version of something, you're going to get a good dosage of that and kind of your core staples. Um, and then you can always bump it up with like the olive oils, the butters, the coconut oil and that sort of stuff. Nice. If you, if you had much success or if, if your athletes had success being plant-based and high fat, um, like, I, I get that question fairly often. And so I'm just wondering if it's, if it's possible to, to still get what you need from plants, um, while also trying to consume a higher portion of, of fats, or do you feel like it, it works better if you're using plant and animal sources of, of fuel? Yeah, that's I'm, a good question. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to get tribal. I, I'm, I know some people sure. either have a, a religious or a moral or an ethical reason behind it. And so I, I'm trying to figure out <laughs> how we can, how we can do both sort of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's definitely worth touching on too. Cause I think like when the way I look at it is like, if you're going to get into the categories of like, like what I would consider like the polar ends of restrictive. So like if you're eliminating all animal products or if you're eliminating all carbohydrates Versus kind of where I'm at, where like I'm further along the high fat range, but not necessarily like zero carb by any stretch of the imagination. Um, when you start getting to that, you start eliminating like entire groups of foods. I think that's where you just have to be very careful with like what you're missing out on that. Because I think most foods kind of have pros and cons. Like it's pretty rare that you have this, you get a food where it's like, oh, this is only going to do good things. It's not going to, there's no chance of it doing anything negative. And I think that applies to plants. I think that applies to animal products. So like when you're looking at, when you're looking at food, I like to look at it as like, well, what, what product does this particular thing best? And then going with that and that, and that works well for someone like myself, who's open to plants, meats, you know, in my case, lower carb, but still some carbohydrates. And I kind of keep all those things on the table as tools. So the biggest difference I would see from someone who's like, say, I'm on, a, I'm going to be vegan, high fat, low carb. I think you can do it. And there's probably some good examples out there. Um, but I, you just have to be very, very calculated, most likely, and probably talk to a dietitian to make sure you're not like, you know, putting yourself in a position where you're lacking some micronutrient or some nutrient to the point where it's going to come back and get you down the road that you might not notice right up front because it kind of depletes a little slower. Um, 
there's a there's a, a lady who's an orthopedic surgeon that I follow on Twitter called Carrie Dooley, Dioulis. Sorry, a little tongue twister with her last name. Um, and she does a she has she actually has type one diabetes. She runs um, and uh, follows a vegan, high fat, low carb, fairly strict ketogenic actually diet. I think if I'm not mistaken. So uh, I feel like she's really done her homework on that. So folks who are in that camp, like that's the strategy I want to play around with. I would go follow her, um, follow her and see kind of what she, what she's doing and kind of maybe glean some, some higher knowledge than what I'm able to provide from, from her strategies and what, what maybe what are the pitfalls she looks for certain food groups that would fit in that context that are often not considered that are like really good, good sources to have. Um, she would be the person I would recommend. Thank you. Well, you're uh, you're a wealth of resources um, and and knowledge, and um, I appreciate your willingness to share the those resources uh, to others that that can provide them. Um, like I like I mentioned earlier, I've I've referred athletes that I coach to you because I you just know this this part of the sport better than I do, and I don't claim to, <laughs> to know it as well as you or others do. So I, I feel like I would be doing a disservice by, you know, getting greedy and pretending to know, um, as much as you do. So I appreciate your willingness to, to share and to help. Um, we didn't really get a chance to, <laughs> to do this. Um, so in the, in the short time that we have remaining, um, you know, we, we didn't really talk a lot about how you prepared for the treadmill or how you mentally prepared to to shift to doing something that wasn't necessarily the goal for which you had initially prepared for. Um, we touched on it a bit, but I, I wanted to circle back to that. Um, things are gradually opening up, um, a bit throughout the world, um, and, uh, in various phases. And, you know, even though some places might be open, some people might be taking different precautions about, um, how public <laughs> or how how close to others they get with their training um, or how large a gatherings they'll be forming um, with their training or or their adventures um, for those who who are somewhat limited for various reasons to a treadmill um, do you have any recommendations for people who who this might be somewhat new for um, that spending that much time on a treadmill some things that they they might want to prepare for, um, and also maybe some, some things that you learned, um, about how your body responds and how, how to adapt and adjust the training and, and even the workouts or pacing, um, on a treadmill. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, um, variety is your best friend when it comes to a treadmill. So like one thing I learned kind of in my buildup was that sitting on one pace for a very long period of time was going to be more kind of, I guess, mentally or psychologically taxing than I was going to be willing to deal with. Um, so I would like, I did a strategy of like, rather than say like running at 8.5 miles per hour for an entire long run, uh, I would like flex up and down around that quite a bit. So like I would rarely ever be at 8.5 exactly, but at the end I'd average that and be like going 8.3, 8.4, 8.5, 8.6, 8.7, and just kind of like giving myself a little bit of a shorter term thing to look forward to. And, and that, that worked really well for kind of some of the longer runs where I was on the treadmill for a bit more time. Um, 
The other thing is like with the treadmill, I feel like your mechanics with your foot are just a little bit different in the sense that you're kind of responding to a moving belt versus over like, you know, stationary ground. So like just paying attention in some of the early workouts, if there's any like different like sensations or like little like aches and pains that aren't normally there so that you can be proactive with like mobility stuff. If that starts, starts to be an issue, um, you know, so maybe like ease into it a little bit versus skewing your entire training schedule over to it right away, unless you've been on a treadmill a lot in the past and you've already kind of worked through those paces are, are probably pretty good kind of starting strategies for that stuff. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to have to quarantine for 14 days in a, in about a week here. Um, because I, um, uh, I've got to go down to the States for a bit, um, and, and then return and there's a mandatory 14 day quarantine, um, <laughs> that I've had to, that I had to do the last time I was down in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't even remember the last time I actually ran on a treadmill. Like I, I, for whatever reason, this winter, even though it wasn't like a great winter, I just said, you know what, if I can, I'm going to go outside and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I need the fresh air, especially because of all this stuff that was going on. I mean, winter runs through May here, June sometimes. Um, and so it was kind of like, if I don't go outside for my run, I might not leave the house for days. And so it was more for the mental break than, than anything. Um, so I'm, I'm actually partially trying to prepare myself mentally for, uh, for that time on the treadmill. Um, and so, I may watch all 12 hours uh, of your, <laughs> of your uh, I watched a lot of it. Uh, d- to be honest, I watched yours and then I, um, I had been following Mike's effort as well. Um, just a little side note. Mike was, was new to ultra and was the, the athlete manager and the event manager when I did the, the 50 mile treadmill effort. And so he was one of my pace keepers. He was one of the people recording the mile splits and, um, and what's crazy is at that time he was still like relatively new to running and definitely new to the ultra scene. Like he, he hadn't broken onto the scene, hadn't gotten into um, the lower carb diet and um, hadn't won the triple crown of two hundreds or anything like that. And that wasn't that long ago. So it's really cool to see how far he's come just in the last few years in large part because of, I mean, he's certainly put in the work training wise, but he's, he's changed his diet. But, um, but I watched what he did with that, like, the hundred miler without any carbs. And, uh, and then I watched what you did and, and I went out and it was partially just because of the timing of the day, but I had a little window in the afternoon after it it, it was all, you hadn't finished, but, um, I had a break. So I went and I, I wasn't completely fasted, but I intentionally didn't bring any fuel. (laughs) So I I went on a three hour run, uh, a non-fueled three hour run, um, at least while on the run. And then I, I finished up my run with a, with a burger, um, and, uh, and watched you finish up what you did. So, um, that was, that was a good day. I appreciate the inspiration on that day. Um, what about, what about people who, whose races have been canceled? Um, what, what suggestions would you make, um, as far as how to keep that motivation going and and how to set short or long-term goals? Um, because, you know, at, at this point, yes, there are still some dates on the calendar, but I think most of us are of the mind <laughs> that many of those are going to have to be canceled or postponed as well. Um, so what what recommendations would you give? Um, any inspiration that you can provide for 
our listeners um, or, or your athletes or anyone who might be listening to this? Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting things about like training a reverse periodized style is that you can maybe open up some little opportunities to address something that maybe you hadn't in the past or uh, try out something new. So what I liked, what I've been doing with some of my coaching clients um, and once I kind of recover, I might do myself is uh, do kind of go back to the a spot where I'm doing some shorter interval stuff, since that's typically what I'll do when I'm kind of still far out from a goal race. And with that just comes a development of that system a little bit more. So it gets you kind of an actually pretty decent, like 5k, 10k shape relative to what most ultra runners are probably at during their peak phase of training. So I'll put little benchmarks, like little time trials, like fun things on the schedule to when, when we're doing that. So like maybe at the end of this, when, when we address like VO2 mats or short interval stuff, maybe put a couple 5k time trials at the end of this, they have something to look forward to and, and uh, potentially, uh, you know, make some improvements upon that. And then uh, if we move into another phase of training and we're working more on like a lactic threshold system of training, we can start like focusing on some of the maybe traditional events that are just a little longer. So like depending on the person's uh, pacing, it could be like anywhere probably from a 10K to a half marathon where like, let's see, let's put a couple time trials for that on the schedule. And, you know, these shorter races just tend to be a little more approachable to do on your own. And we have this this uh, situation where our long races are yeah, for the most part not popping up yet and probably won't be and certainly with the big ones uh, for a while yet. So kind of using this as a chance to kind of start the, the beginning phases of uh, developing some of those systems that are least specific to race intensity now and kind of using time trials that are a little shorter or maybe a little more approachable when you're, when you're doing them by yourself is, is, is I think a really good strategy. And then, if we get to a point late summer where we see some races popping up at the end of the year that you can get to, you can easily just switch into kind of the specificity of that, that type of intensity or that race distance and uh, build off of that uh, kind of speed work that you did in the earlier phases of the, of the training plan. Thank you. And then one, one final question, um, as you mentioned, 5k, 10k, um, you know, you and I, ran in high school and in college and and we weren't we weren't terrible but we weren't we weren't lighting the track on fire and and setting world records um what do you what advice do you give to someone who's new to running and and maybe not necessarily realizing their full potential the very first time that they go for a run um or or even the first few years or or decade of their their life as runners what what has motivated you and what do you think others can draw from in terms of motivation to to really chase their potential uh, as you have i mean you, you you now hold multiple world and american records um but zach of, of 20 years ago may not have seen who you could have become at the time how how do you how do you stick with it long enough to feel like you're you're knocking on the door of your potential yeah, that's a great question. I think like, um, you know, definitely looking at it as something that's like a long-term, like patient person's approach where like, you know, no matter what happens in your training and your racing at the moment, it's going to positively feed into future training blocks and things like that. So 
keeping that in mind that there's not like, you know, like if you have good workouts, but a bad race, that doesn't mean it was a waste of time. It means you're just building, building a time and uh, progress towards a race that'll go well in the future. I think that's one thing to keep in mind. I think also just like from a general standpoint, I think one of the reasons that uh, I've gotten to where I've gotten with ultra running is just like, I've, I have a, a legitimate curiosity with the sport of running that has kept me interested in it, even when I wasn't necessarily winning races or finishing on podiums that uh, allowed me to probably be patient without necessarily thinking of it as being patient. So what I like to tell people when they're getting into the sport, especially is like, well, what part of the sport excites you? What's the thing about running that is motivating you to want to do this in the first place and really try to get into like the actual why as to what you're trying to do. Because um, if you enjoy what you're doing, it shouldn't necessarily matter if you have a good race or a bad race, because like if you enjoy what you're doing, you'll look back at it as a, a fun experience or some valuable experience, a learning lesson or something like that, no matter what the outcome is. So I think if you get it, if you start looking at it through that lens, you just get yourself into maybe a little better of a position to want to stay in it long enough to actually realize where your potential is actually at. That's really good. Is there anything else you want to share with, uh, with our listeners that relates to the art or the science of running? No, I think we covered covered quite a bit. It's been a, been a blast to come on and, and chat with you, Jake. So thanks for the, Thanks for the time and uh, the the invitation. Yeah, thanks for thanks for accepting it. I know it's a it's a busy time for all of us, and um, and I I know you're in you're in high demand right now, um, and uh, we're looking forward to sharing this and um, you know cheering for you uh, in your next effort. Um, it, can you? let us know where, where people can find you when it comes to coaching services or, or on online on social media. Um, for those who might have not known you, um, prior to this, um, where can, where can we find Zach Bitter? Yeah. So the kind of the easiest spot that has links to basically everything is my website, which is zachbitter.com. I'm probably most active on Instagram and Twitter and Instagram is at Zach Bitter and Twitter is at Z Bitter. All right. Well, thank you again, and uh, all the best with with the next big big effort. Yeah, thanks, Jake, and thanks again for taking some time out of your Saturday on the sixteenth to join us for the live stream. Yeah, it was it was honestly, like I said, um, w- one of my favorite sporting events that I've that I've ever participated in. I never thought that I would say that about a Zoom meeting, but it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to hear. <laughs> Not just because because of your record, but it was like the orchestration of it all. It was, it was electric. It was, um, it was, it was really cool. So thank you. It was a blast. Thanks again for listening to the art and science of running podcast. If you found this episode interesting, entertaining, inspiring, or informative, please share it with your friends on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and tag the art and science of running so that we can reshare it better yet. Please rate review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. This will help others with similar interests find this free resource that we've created for listeners around the world. Many thanks in advance.